and find a place or a way to market Jeremiah 29. All right, so you got Daniel 1, take a left, go back to Jeremiah 29, and then from Daniel 1, take a right and go to Mark chapter 14. That's 852. You're using the Blue Bible. <clears throat> so Jeremiah 29, Daniel chapter 1, Mark chapter 14, and we're going to start with Daniel chapter 1. One of the the great tensions that we all feel as followers of Christ is, is how do you live in this world? I mean, once Christ has got a hold of your life, once you've given your life to Christ, however you want to describe that conversion then you're new. You're a new creation in Christ, but you're still living in an old created world. And so how do you as this new person continue to intersect this old life, this old world? And it's a tension. Are are you are we supposed to assimilate or should we isolate? Are, Are we supposed to live as exiles or are we supposed to integrate into the world? Are we supposed to live as strangers in the world? Or are we supposed to live as citizens of the world? See, this tension, I know you feel it because it's all over the Bible. John chapter 17, Jesus prays this. This is his high, high priestly prayer before the crucifixion. My prayer is not that you take them. This is the disciples. He's praying to the Lord. Father, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. As you sent me into the world, so I send them. This is where we get that phrase, be in the world, but what? Not not of the world. So he's praying specifically that they would be part of the world. I, I don't want them to isolate. I don't want them to, to, to be exiled. I want them to be involved. Then Paul, Romans twelve two, do not conform any longer to the pattern of what? This world. Well, I just thought we're supposed to be in the world. Jesus is saying be in the world, and Paul's saying, well, don't don't conform to the world. Don't be in this pattern. And then Paul is, in his own words, seem, seemingly creating this tension. First Corinthians nine twenty two, become all things to all men, so that by all possible means I might become some. So, so don't conform to the world, but while you live in the world, try to become all things to all men. So, so you see the tension. You feel the tension. You're, you're this new creation in Christ, and how are you supposed to intersect this world now? Are you supposed to, to, to isolate? Are you supposed to integrate? Andrew Walls, who wrote a book on missions, he says that he calls these two things two impulses. His words, indigenous principle and pilgrim principle. So indigenous is you're, you're integrated. Or are you a pilgrim? You're, you're just passing through. And this is what he states. The gospel must become indigenous in every culture. It must find a home. That's, that's the indigenous impulse. Yet at the same time, and just as powerful, the gospel must produce a pilgrim mindset. Loosening people from their culture. The gospel has to be able to criticize and correct the culture. It actually turns people into aliens and exiles within their own culture. So, so we're in the world, but we're not of the world. We, we conform 
except that we, we don't conform, except that we try to become all things. We're, we, we try to become indigenous, yet we're trying to live as pilgrims. So my, I still have the same question. So how do you do that? You have this great tension. How do you leave this place and go live in the world? And the book of Daniel offers us a great deal of help. This is probably the most relevant book in some, case, in some senses to our current cultural situation. And that is Daniel, he lived 2,500 years ago, and he lived in Babylon, or what's now modern-day Iraq. And he wrestled with these tensions all the way through his life. So as we get to Daniel 1, let's try to back up and, and put us on the right map as how we got to Daniel chapter 1. And a bit of a review. These foundational cracks that you might remember began with Solomon. Uh, began to, to create some cracks in the kingdom of Israel. The first crack was that Israel split into north and south. Israel and Judah. But these cracks, these moving away from God cracks... Uh, were never really addressed, so they became a chasm. And 350 years later, Israel doesn't just split in two. It completely collapses. It completely crumbles. And last week, we talked about Jeremiah, the weeping prophet. This was the prophet who lived at the end of that 350 years. And he witnessed firsthand the invasion, the invasion and destruction of Jerusalem by King Nebuchadnezzar, who was the king of the Babylonians. The Babylonians are the live in the northern part. Egypt is in the southern part. Israel's in between. And Babylon is to the north of Israel. And Jeremiah witnessed the destruction of Jerusalem. He also witnessed a series of deportations. So King Nebuchadnezzar and his army came into Israel. And when they left, they took people with him. And let's look at Daniel chapter 1. Uh, verse 1 through 4. So they capture the Israelites and they force them to march 500 miles. Imagine that. They got to march 500 miles back to Babylon and then they become slaves and servants of the Babylonian culture. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, this is the last king there, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into Nebuchadnezzar's hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. Okay, so he came into the temple and he took things out of the temple and he brought them to the land of Shinar to the house of his God. He brings them back to to Babylon and he takes the things out of the Jerusalem temple and he puts them in his own temple. And it's a way of saying your gods aren't as strong as my gods because I just conquered you. And so I'm going to take stuff out of your temple. I don't need it all. I just need it representative. So I've got my God in my temple and then all your little artifacts over here. And everybody's going to know I'm bigger. My God's bigger than your little puny God. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been able to conquer you. That's what Nebuchadnezzar's doing. Then the king, verse 3, commanded Ashpenaz, the chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel. Okay, this is the first deportation. I want some of these people that we just conquered. They need to come back with us. And notice who he chooses. The royal family. Some people from the nobility. And then youths. Teenagers. Without blemish. It's hard to imagine. Uh, maybe they had good proactive back then. I'm not sure. <laughs> youths without blemish of good appearance. Skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace. 
And then he was going to teach them the literature and the language of the Chaldeans or the Babylonians. They're going to be immersed in the culture of Babylon. And so when Nebuchadnezzar Nebuchadnezzar enters into any nation, Israel particularly here, he's got a particular strategy. And here's his strategy. I go in, I conquer the people, and then I'm going to take all the the sort of ruling class people, and I'm going to bring them back to Babylon. I'm eventually going to bring a lot more people back. But the first wave, which was 10,000 people, I'm going to bring them back. Because if I get the ruling class and I get the people who are really into to literature and art and, and academics, and I get them immersed in our new worldview, and they buy in, they assimilate, then when I bring sort of the blue-collar class in, then they'll assimilate pretty easily. Because their ruling class is already assimilated. When I bring in sort of the slaves, they're going to assimilate. So he's trying to assimilate this culture. Now, I don't know, how, how many people are Star Trek fans? Now, there's about three or four of us out here. You, you don't have to embarrass raise that. I see the hand. Well, if you, if you know one of the, one of the Star Trek, there, there's an evil group called the Borg. You know the Borg? I'm sorry if you don't know this. This is really important for you to go home and watch on Netflix. But the Borg are sort of these uh, robotic people, and they come and conquer nations, and they have this sort of creepy voice. And they say, uh, resistance is futile. You will be assimilated. I mean, that's, that's really scary. You will be assimilated. And that's essentially what Nebuchadnezzar is doing. He's saying, you will be assimilated. We're not monotheistic. We're polytheistic. We have a totally different culture. We have a totally different literature. We have a totally different worldview. And I'm going to bring these smart people, especially these teenagers, I'm going to bring them back. They're going to be totally immersed in our culture. And then when I bring back the blue-collar class, then everybody's going to be assimilated. And that's how Nebuchadnezzar is going to rule. And so it's, it's a pretty, pretty smart plan. And so in Daniel chapter 3, what we see is that this first class is deport, it has this deportation. There's about 10,000, and one of the 10,000 is Daniel. And most biblical scholars think he's about 15. So if you're listening and you're a teenager, you're in college, this is a great sermon for you. Because imagine you being in that group. Hey, we need you to come back. You're 15. And we're going to get you in the best education that there is in Babylon. And we're going to get you to totally assimilate with our culture. So, so how do you live then? You see the tension? I haven't been obedient to God, but I really do believe there is a God. I trust in Yahweh, the almighty God. And now I'm being thrust into this brand new culture, and I'm told I've got to assimilate. Well, how do you live in that culture? You feel the tension. Now turn back with me to Jeremiah chapter 29. You'll see the title of your chapter probably says Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. And Jeremiah was alive during the first deportation, so his life overlapped Daniel's. And so in that day, there were false prophets who would go go to Babylon, and they would say something like this, Hey, I've been told in two years Babylon's going to be destroyed, and you're going to come back to Jerusalem. So you've got to hang on for two years. You've got to isolate 
Don't integrate with the culture. And in two years, you're all going to be back. It's all going to be okay. And Jeremiah says, that's false. That's not what the Lord says. And so he writes a letter to the people in Babylon. And that's why it says Jeremiah's letter to the exiles. And this is what he says. Uh, 29 verse 4. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into the exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. That's the setting. This is what I want you to do. Build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there. Do not decrease. Now, this is really a stunning verse. Seek the welfare of the city. These people who have captured you, I want you to seek the, the welfare. The word in Hebrew is the shalom, the peace of the city. And pray to the Lord on the city's behalf. For in its welfare you will find your welfare. For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets, these false prophets, who are among you deceive you, and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. In other words, you're not coming back in two years, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I didn't send them, declares the Lord. And so this had to be stunning. You, you want us to integrate? You, you want us to get involved with the city? You want us to love the city? You want us to seek the welfare of the city? And it had to really just... Uh, be mind blow, a mind-blowing letter if you're one in exiles. But this letter is a blueprint for Daniel's life. That's why we're reading this letter. This is how Daniel determined how he should then live his life. The letter is a sort of a blueprint. And let's just pick out three things from verse 7. Notice what God says. You are where I have sent you. It's very important just to see. This didn't happen by chance, Israel. You're in the location that I'm sending you to. So God is informing Israel, your loss of power, you being scattered among the pagan nations, you being in the minority culture rather than in the majority culture, it's all part of God's plan. Number two, seek the welfare or the shalom of the city. In other words, love the city. Work for the health of the city. Don't, don't isolate. Instead, integrate. And then notice this, pray to the Lord on its behalf. Stay connected to me. While you're integrated, while you're praying for the welfare of the city, make sure you stay connected to me. In other words, God's saying, I don't want you to love me and isolate from the city. And I don't want you to integrate into the city and forget about me. What I want you to do is love the city and love me. See, that's the tension. That's, that's Daniel's blueprint. How do I love the city? How do I get engaged? And at the same time, uh, I'm still connected to God. And there's going to be tensions all the way through Daniel's life that he's going to experience. He's 15 at the deportation. He lives the rest of his life, probably 70 to 75 years, in Babylon. And he lives inside the political culture of Babylon. He eventually becomes the prime minister. So how do you live as a faithful person in the midst of this terrible culture without isolating or integrating and forgetting about the Lord? That, this is the blueprint for, for Daniel's life. Look at, back with me now to Daniel chapter 1. Look at the very end of the chapter. 
And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. You see that? From chapter 20, to cha- from verse 20 to verse 21, that's a distance of 75 years. In other words, Daniel started with King Nebuchadnezzar, but he ended with King Cyrus. That's 75 years. So the writer's just telling you he lived through all these kings. Turn with me, if you don't mind, one last time. I told you you're going to have to be on your toes. You're going to have to go way left to Ezra. Ezra, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles, Ezra. I just want to make this connection because I want you to understand how to read your Bibles. So Ezra, you got, got that? Ezra chapter 1, verse 1. Ezra 1, 1. In the first year of Cyrus. Okay, you see what it's saying? Daniel lived until Cyrus was the king. Ezra now comes on the scene. So Dan, Jeremiah and Daniel overlap at the beginning. Now Daniel and Ezra overlap. And notice what it says. Um, In the first year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, the king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing that we're sending people back. Look at verse 7, one last verse. Cyrus the king also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem. See what's happening? So Nebuchadnezzar had come down, he'd taken the people, and he'd taken these things out of the temple. He put them in his, oh, oh, put them in his own uh, temple. Now, 70 years later, Cyrus is saying, let's send these people back and let's send these artifacts back. So that's Daniel's life. He's living in this span of 70 years. He's in the political class. He's trying to figure out, how do I live here in this tension? Ezekiel... Chapter 14, you don't have to turn there. You'll be thankful to know. He has a kind of hall of fame of Old Testament people. You can look at it later. Here's Ezekiel's hall of fame. Who would you put in the hall of fame of Old Testament people? Think about that. Just three. Noah. Job. Daniel. So of all the people Ezekiel could say were really righteous, Noah, Job, and Daniel superseded everybody else. And so the reason I'm trying to, to point these things, sort of odd points out, is how does Daniel maintain his righteousness and integrity that seems to be above everybody else in, while he's implanted and embedded in this hostile political culture? That's my question. And what a question for today. How are you supposed to be at the highest level of politics and maintain righteousness and integrity? This ought to be must reading for everybody who's going into political office. Because that's what we need. We need people who can get in there and really be integrated at the same time. They're listening to the Lord and they're, they're, they're trying to live in a righteous or um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in the right way. So let me start by reading Daniel chapter 1, verse 8. We won't be flipping around so much here. So I, I wanted to set all that up, and especially pay attention if you're a teenager. 
Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. Okay, this word resolved, it means he he made up his mind. He purposed in his heart. Now, we, we don't have time to read the surrounding verses, but if you read the surrounding verses, what you'd find out is Daniel and his three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they all moved into the dorm. They all are getting uh, the best professors. Uh, they're all getting integrated into all this information that these professors are getting to them. And, and all the information, the worldview is totally different. And the final exam for these four men is to stand in front of the king. It's not just your professor. It's the very end is you've got to go in front of the king and he's going to quiz you. And he's going to find out if you've learned everything that that his people have taught you. Turn with me to chapter 1, verse 20. They stand before him. They say, it says that in 19. And then this is the king's response to Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And in every manner of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all of his kingdom. Wow. So, so they were integrated. They were totally integrated. But, and this is a big but, they, they have boundaries. I want you to get in the world. I want you to love the world. But you have to have boundaries. In some places you have to be resolved. Uh, and their resolve here for Daniel was to not to eat the king's food. There were limits to the assimilation. There were lines he couldn't cross. And, and when, when he got pushed across those lines, Daniel was resolved not to live that way. So if you're a teenager, are, are there things in your mind that you're already resolved about? Or are you making up your ethics as you go? See, it's not good to make up your ethics on a Friday night when you arrive at the party. I don't know. What am I going to do? It's not good to make up your ethics when you're in a car alone with somebody from the opposite sex. I don't, I don't know how this is going to turn out. See, are there boundaries? Are there, is, do you have a resolve to say, hey, I'm trying to be in the culture in some way, but I have certain boundaries. And when I get pushed across those boundaries, I'm not going to cross them. There are lines that I cannot cross because it would be dishonoring to the Lord. So I've, I've made up my mind. I've resolved to live in a certain way. Or when you get pushed to cross those boundaries, does your resolve dissolve? You're resolved right here in church because there's no pressure. But when you get to the place where the pressure's on, just all your resolve dissolves. I want to tell you a story, and you can just write down Jeremiah chapter 35. I, I, had to, I tried to work this in last week, and I couldn't, so I'm working it in right now. I love this story. This group called the Rechabites. Rechabites, Jeremiah chapter 35. Let me set the scene. Nebuchadnezzar is coming into Israel. And, and he's invading the nation. And when ha- what happens when a nation comes in to invade another nation, there's lots of people who live outside the walled cities. And when a nation comes in to occupy, all the people who've been living outside the walled cities, guess what they do? They flee to the city. 
They try to get some protection. They, so they come inside the walls, and there's this group of nomads called the Rechabites. They come back into Jerusalem to try to receive some shelter. And Jeremiah is there, and he notices this weird group of people called the Rechabites. There are these nomads, these people who live in tents, and they don't look like city folk. And so when they come back into the city, they're all together, and they say, hey, that's the Rechabites over there. And Jeremiah notices them. And he does something very interesting. He, he calls them to go to the temple. So the Rechabites, they're coming to the temple. And what you know about the Rechabites is the reason they're called the Rechabites is 250 years ago, they had an ancestor called Rechab. All right? So they're the Rechabites. And this ancestor had a particular discipline and lifestyle that he wanted all of his ancestors to follow. And this is what it was is that they don't drink wine, they don't plant seeds, they don't build houses, and they live in tents. All right, so that's their way of life. It started by a great-great-great-great-great-grandfather who lived 250 years ago. It'd be like today if you say, I live the way I live because my great-great-great-great-grandfather said this in 1750. Imagine that. It's just passed, it's just being passed down, and he said it 250 years ago, so I just live that way. Can you imagine doing that? Well, that's the Rechabites. And Jeremiah says, hey, I want to bring these people into the temple. So when they come into the temple, and they come up the stairs, all these nomads coming up the stairs and into the temple, everybody notices. And he has them sit, sit down. And then Jeremiah brings out wine and a bunch of pitchers and glasses and says, Hey, Rechabites, have a drink. Now try to appreciate the pressure. This sounds like a high school party back when I was in high school. You're there. You have your way of living. But you're in this place. All the powerful, all the popular people are in the temple. They're all looking at you and see, are you going to cave in right now? And Jeremiah, this prophet, is asking them to take a drink. Their answer comes this way. They answered, we will drink no wine. We obey and do all that our father commanded us. (laughs) It's like they're just reciting the alphabet. Uh, yeah, Jeremiah, we don't do that. No, no hesitation, no drama, just uh, that's a boundary we can't cross. That, thanks for the offer. We appreciate the protection. We understand everybody's looking at us. We know all the powerful people around here. But we have a word from our father 250 years ago, and we don't bend from that word. And God knew exactly what he was doing when he chose Jeremiah to get the Rechabites because he's facing down all the two-faced people in the temple who have the word of God Almighty and they don't hold to it. And he's looking at his people inside the church saying, if you could be just like the Rechabites... They're adhering to some man's word 250 years ago, and you won't adhere to my word. Do you see the contrast he's setting up? The Rechabites are trying to move into the city because there's trouble. There's some bend. There's some flexibility. But they have a resolve. They have a boundary. And when they get pushed to cross the boundary, they say, no, no thanks. We have a word from our Father, 
and we're not going to bend on that word. It's the same thing that's happening with Daniel. Daniel loves the city. He's deeply involved in the politics of the city. But when he's called to cross the line, he doesn't. And so my question, and I want to end just looking at three things. What fuels this resolve? See, I could stop here and just say, go be resolved. But you know how long that's going to last? Two minutes, five minutes maybe? So, so my question is, let's look at Daniel and say, okay, what fuels this man's resolve? Why is he able to stand as the prime minister in this pagan culture and yet stand with boundaries? And here are the three things I want to mention. First of all, Daniel's absolute certainty of the dust of mankind and the everlasting sovereignty of God. This is the key point here. What fuels his resolve? Daniel's absolute certainty of the dust of mankind and the everlasting sovereignty of God. And you might say, that sounds like two things. And it is, but preachers sneak two things in and make them one. When Daniel was 15, Nebuchadnezzar was the king. Nebuchadnezzar was one of the greatest kings that the ancient world ever knew. He reigned for 43 years. He built a magnificent city. But you know what happened to Nebuchadnezzar in 562 B.C.? Yeah, he died. And behind him was his grandson, Belshazzar. And then he died. And then behind him was Darius, and then he died. And then behind him was Cyrus, and eventually Cyrus died. You see... All these people died. And in Ecclesiastes 3.20, it says, All come from dust, and and to dust all return. uh, Daniel was so certain about the dust of mankind. He wasn't overly impressed with power and popularity. I'm sorry if you didn't grow up in the 70s and 80s listening to rock music. But Kansas, you might know this song. It slips away, and all your money won't another minute buy. If you, if you know this song, you're singing it in your head right now. And I couldn't possibly sing that line. Dust in the wind. All we are is what? Dust in the wind. See, Daniel is rock solid that everybody, no matter how powerful, no matter how popular, all they are, dust in the wind. So what fuels Daniel's resolve? No matter how powerful a person he's standing in front of, he knows in the end, dust in the wind. Man, that can fuel your resolve. But he also couples that with an absolute understanding of the everlasting sovereignty of God. Look with me, chapter 2, verse 27. I'm fascinated by these exchanges. Chapter 2, verses 27, he's coming to um, Nebuchadnezzar to interpret a dream. And you can kind of read by these verses, but it's really helpful to read them closely. Then, Daniel, then, then the king said to Daniel, this is chapter 2, verses 20, verse 26. The king said to Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, they had renamed, renamed Daniel. Are you able to know, make known to me the dream that I have and its interpretation? Daniel says... No wise man, enchanter, magician, or astrologer can show the king the mystery of the king that he has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. And he has made known to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. Look back down at verse 37. He picks up on it. 
You, O king, king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, power, might, and glory, and, to, and, and into whose hand he has given, wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you ruler over all of them. You notice? Nebuchadnezzar, you have all this power. Where does it come from? Yeah, it comes from God. You, you just wonder what Nebuchadnezzar might have been thinking. You wonder if anybody ever talked to Nebuchadnezzar like this. Hey, Nebuchadnezzar, you've got all this stuff from God. You don't own any of it. You didn't do any of it. It's all a gift from God. Now, let me tell you about that God. See, Daniel is very impressed with God, not very impressed with Nebuchadnezzar. Everything Nebuchadnezzar has built is a gift. It's on loan from God. It's not something that he created. He does it again in chapter 5, Belshazzar. Look with me in chapter 5, 23. This is a very unusual chapter, and you want to go home and read it. But Belshazzar has uh, really uh, done some despicable things. He gets afraid, and Daniel comes in to tell him really some bad news that he's going to die. And it says this in verse chapter 5, 23. You have, lifted, you have lifted up yourself against the Lord of heaven, and the vessels of this house have been brought in before you, and you and your lords, your wives, and your concubines have drunk wine from them. This is, these are the vessels from the temple of Jerusalem. And you have praised the gods of silver and gold and bronze and iron and wood and stone, which you see or hear or know, but the God in whose hand is your breath. Hey, Belshazzar. You can't breathe on your own. See, Daniel, he understands the absolute sovereignty of God. Belshazzar, you wouldn't be here breathing unless God wanted you to be breathing. Nebuchadnezzar, you wouldn't have anything unless God has given it to you. You see how that fuels Daniel's resolve? Whenever he's before the most powerful, here's a 15-year-old boy. And he's standing in front of the most powerful people. And he says, you know what? In the end, dust in the wind. And you wouldn't have anything you have. And I wouldn't have anything I have if God hadn't given it to me. When you get a hold of that, that fuels your resolve to stand firm when you need to stand firm instead of assimilating into the culture. Number two. The second thing that fuels his resolve is his friends. You know this story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You remember that? Uh, They didn't do what the king wanted them to do. And so what did the king do? Threw them into the fiery furnace. Remember that? And uh, right before the fiery furnace, the king's saying, hey, it's going to be hot in there. You want to change your mind? I mean, I'm looking at that flame. It's pretty hot. You're trusting in the Lord. I don't know if this is going to work out for you. In chapter 3, verse 17... They look at the king. Again, I think they have the same resolve that Daniel has. And then they say this again, just like repeating their alphabet. Uh, If this be so, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace. He's able. He might not, but he's able. And he will deliver us out of your hand one way or the other. But if not... Be it known to you, O king, that we will not serve your gods. What a great, great moment. 
Think about the strength that gave Daniel. That he has these kinds of friends. Think about how much stronger your resolve would be if you were surrounded by Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Wow. If you went to your high school or you went to your college and you had three people who said, hey, we're going to go to the mat. You're going to go with us? What are you going to say? Yeah. You got to do it by yourself. Oh, I'm dissolving. I'm not resolving. I'm dissolving. You don't know. But 65 years later, Daniel gets to experience the same thing. You remember how it happened? I won't bow down to this golden image. And what does the king say? You go into the lion's den. So now Daniel's 80. He steps into this cave. He can hear the growls. Stone gets rolled over to the mouth of the cave and he just stands there he's listening and we don't know but very possibly he was thinking hey Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego they did it are you that kind of person for your friends see you can't say do you have friends like that and then you got to go out and try to find some of them But that's really not my question. My question is, is are you that kind of person? See, people are looking for people like that. But my question is, are you that person? So that other people are strengthened by your friendship. Their resolve is strengthened by your resolve. They see you love the city, but yet not bend on boundaries. Are you fueling someone else's resolve? Daniel has these great friends. I think they, their influence lasts a whole lifetime for Daniel. Finally, Daniel has hope. What, what helps this resolve? Dust of man, the sovereignty of God, friends, and he has hope. Ch- Daniel chapter 7, and we're going to end here. Da- the last half of Daniel, first half, 1 through 6, a bunch of events happen. Chapter 7 through 12, a bunch of visions happen. It's called apocalyptic literature, and apocalypse means unveiling. So something's been unveiled about end times to Daniel, which causes a great deal of discussion, which we won't get into this morning. But in Daniel chapter 7, Daniel describes a series of very powerful kingdoms rising and falling. And then you notice at the very end of that description, he looks up, verse 9, thrones were placed, and the ancient of days, a great, great, Word to describe God. The ancient of days took his seat, and his clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool, and his throne was fiery flames. See, he's over fiery flames. Its wheels were burning, a stream of fire issued and came out from from before him. Thousands and thousands served the Lord, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him, and the before him the court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. This is a courtroom scene. It's the end of days. The ancient of days is coming, and he's going to open up the books and find out where your name is. One more vision here, verse 13. And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one 
like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, kingdom. All peoples, nations, language would serve the Son of Man. His dominion would be an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one which will not be destroyed. And who is Daniel obviously referring to here? Jesus. He's the Son of Man. He's coming to the Ancient of Days at this judgment ceremony. He's going to sit at the right hand of God the Father, and he's going to have dominion and glory, and he's going to set up a kingdom that's never going to end. And so Daniel has this perspective The perspective of himself, the perspective of his people, the perspective of his current circumstances, the perspective on his current political landscape. All of his perceptions were tied into his vision of eternity. See, Daniel wasn't wasn't, uh, trapped by the surface of the world. He's not stuck in a narrow hallway of his timeline. For Daniel, everything didn't have to work out in his own time. He didn't have to get everything worked out in his lifetime because he knew there was an eternity to follow. And so no matter what was happening on the surface, he knew the Ancient of Days was going to come and somebody called the Son of Man is going to come and they're going to judge everything that's ever happened. Every king and every servant. And that fuels Daniel's resolve to say, there's going to be a day past all of my days and I'm going to have to get an answer. And I love God. Did I love the city? Did I love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength? And did I love my neighbor as myself? Did I stand in that tension where I really love the city? I cried for the city. I, I got involved. I integrated as much as I could. I, I took a leadership position. But at the same time, I drew boundaries. And those boundaries were costly at times. Was I able to live in that situation? In Mark chapter 14, you don't have to turn to it. Jesus describes himself as the son of man. Jesus, this is we're getting to in the season Easter. He's standing before Pilate and Jesus is on trial. Imagine that. People put God on trial. Jesus looks at him and says, the son of man is coming on clouds and I'm that person. And all chaos breaks loose. Because what is Jesus saying? Today you're judging me. In eternity, I judge you. And they can't handle it. So my question, do you know the Son of Man? The Son of Man that comes now to serve, not to be served. And how does he serve? To give his life a ransom for many. And one day he will come back in power and he will judge both the king and the servant. Did you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Did you love the city? Did you love the people as you would love yourself? Let's pray.